Now, do you like receiving personal letters? I'm not talking about the kind that comes in the mail and the pre-filled credit card applications or applications for some other membership or club or, you know, so it, it, the worst thing is bills that come in. I'm talking about letters written by real people. Now, in our modern-day context of emails and texts, we, we, we probably have long forgotten what it's like to receive a written letter. Thankfully, my family, because of uh, us being from Australia originally, we still have fa friends and family who like to write to us from time to time. And in, in the evening when the mail lady, we have a mail lady, not a mailman, but when the mail lady comes past, you know, our kids would sometimes look out in excitement and go out and open up to see if today is the day that will they will receive another personal letter. Well, over the last six weeks uh, or so, we've been going through a series in the book of First Timothy on church life. And here we have the privilege to look at this intimate letter that Paul has written to Timothy. And, and he's been writing to him about this church in Ephesus and, and how he should lead this church. And so far, he's instructed Timothy on a number, number of things. You might remember we started with um, topics such as public worship, the appointment and qualification of elders and deacons. And last week, we dealt with false doctrines. Now, this morning, today, uh, we are looking at 1 Timothy chapter 4, verses 11 to 16. And in this passage, Paul now turns towards Timothy and gives him a series of personal exhortations in light of what he said in the previous chapters. In five short verses, we're going to see a series of imperatives or standing orders that Paul gives Timothy relating to spiritual growth and maturity. Now, although this letter is addressed to Timothy, there are many principles in, in Tim, uh, Paul's exhortation that apply to all Christians generally. For example, we saw a few weeks ago when we were studying uh, the, the qualifications of elders, we saw that those standards weren't standards of superhumans. They were standards required of Christians who are living the faithful life. So, for example, self-control, having lives beyond reproach, being sober-minded, not drunk. All of these things don't apply to superhumans. They apply to Christians more generally. And so, similarly, today, we can expect that whatever Paul says to Timothy there are broader principles that reasonably apply to us today as well. And so the theme of our sermon this morning is growing in spiritual maturity. I want you this morning to imagine Paul is writing to you in this personal way. The words that we are going to hear apply to every person who claims to be a follower of Christ. And if you're not yet a follower of Christ, the words that you'll hear are also important because you'll learn what it means to be a Christian. And so our sermon this morning is structured in four parts. The first is this. Paul commands us to grow in spiritual maturity. Secondly, we're going to ask, what do we mean by spiritual maturity? Thirdly, we're going to ask ourselves, how should we pursue spiritual maturity? And fourthly, we're going to ask ourselves, why should we be pursuing spiritual maturity? So these are four parts, and if you have your bulletins with you, uh, you can see them here on the right-hand side, on the inside of the bulletin. So let's move to our first point. Our very first point here is that we are all commanded to grow in spiritual maturity. We're all commanded to grow in spiritual maturity. 
We get this idea from looking at verses 11 and 12 together. There Paul says, Command and teach these things. Let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example. Now as we read this, straight away a couple of questions come up. We read, command and teach these things. What things? What things is Paul actually asking Timothy to command and teach? Well, let's remind ourselves of what we've read so far in the book of Timothy. We saw previously that the church in Ephesus had all kinds of problems and errors. Last week, we saw that Paul told Timothy to defend the truth and produce a good ministry in the local church. We're told in verse 15 of chapter 4, for example, he says that the church is meant to be a pillar and buttress of truth. And then Paul expanded on this. And, and so in chapters 3, verse 16 to 4, verse uh, 5, we saw Paul talk about it, and this was our passage last week, about what it means to be a buttress of truth. And so if you've forgotten, I would encourage you just to go home and have a look at that passage again and maybe look at the sermon online again at what we talked about. But let me boil it down to fundamentally what these things means, what we studied last week. There were three things. Number one, how to conduct yourself well. Number two, knowing the gospel of Jesus Christ. And number three, discerning and refuting false teachings. Those are the three things. these things that Paul is referring to when he says to Timothy, command and teach these things. And so, we have to ask the question, how can Timothy go and command and teach these things if he himself does not have a certain level of spiritual maturity? How can he tell others to stop behaving badly in the church if his own conduct is not full of Christ-like qualities? How can he teach others about the gospel of Jesus Christ if he has a very rudimentary understanding of what Christ actually did for us when he died on the cross? And similarly, how can he go and stand up for false preachers if he has no way of discerning falsehood and truth? And so there's a very clear implication here that when Paul is asking Timothy to go and do these things, command and teach these things, he's also telling Timothy that he must be growing in spiritual maturity. So this then raises another question. Does this really apply to us? I mean, isn't Timothy like some kind of super Christian who was brought up in the faith as a young man and he showed all these amazing signs? My short answer to that question is yes. This command to go and teach and command these things still applies to us. It's still an exhortation that we should take at heart. We may not all be called to Timothy's to stand in front of pulpits or to go and found new churches or to lead multiple churches, but we find instructions to command and teach and by implication to grow in spiritual maturity everywhere in the Bible, everywhere in the Bible. Let me throw a few out there. If you have your Bibles with you, you, turn to Colossians chapter 1 and verse 9. Colossians 1, verse 9 to 10. Paul writes, For this reason, since the day we have heard about you, we have not stopped praying for you. We continually ask God to fill you with the knowledge of His will through all the wisdom and understanding that the Spirit gives, so that you may live a life worthy of the Lord 
and please him in every way, in every way, bearing fruit in every good work, growing in the knowledge of God. Do you see how explicit that is there? Paul wants his church or the church in uh, the Colossians church to live a life worthy of the Lord, to bear fruit in every good work, to grow in the knowledge of God. See the strong parallels that's happening here. What about the Great Commission? Jesus' last command to his disciples and all of his followers in Matthew chapter 28, verse 19. He says, go therefore and make disciples of all nations. Now friends, how can we share the gospel with someone without teaching them what the gospel is? Without, without commanding them in Christ's authority to repent and believe. It's not our authority, it's Christ's authority. But we are still there to make that command. And how can we make disciples of all nations, of other people, without ever opening up the Bible to them? And how can we open up the Bible to them without ourselves knowing what the Bible says? Just one more time. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15. There the Apostle Peter says, Be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason of the hope that is in you. And do it with gentleness and respect. Doesn't this commandment from Peter require us to be able to make a defense, to be able to discern truth and error, and to be able to tell what we believe and why we believe it? And so as you can see, Paul's instruction for Timothy to command and teach these things contains general principles for us to also likewise go and do the same and go and grow in maturity and in our spiritual lives. That's the first point that I'm trying to make here. But then you might say, hang on a second. What about this thing about Timothy being too young? Now, as he gives this instruction to Timothy, Paul is immediately faced with a real cultural context in which they both lived in. And that is, Timothy was relatively young compared to some of the leaders and some of the members of that local congregation. So at this time, commentators say he's about 30 to 40 years old. He's not, he's not a teenager, but he's certainly not 50 or 60s as some of the elders uh, and, and older members of the church are. And we know that in the culture of that day, there was a particular deference given to older people, kind of like some of our Eastern cultures today. And in fact, I grew up in that very same culture. Now, Paul immediately heads off this argument, this I'm too young argument, by calling it out and arguing it's not a disqualifier, it's not an excuse for you to give, not to grow in spiritual maturity. He says to Timothy in verse 12, let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example. Now, I want you to notice something here. He doesn't just say, well, defend yourself. He doesn't say, these people who criticize you, they'll just need to get comfortable with the idea that you're young. What does he actually says? He says, no. He puts the onus back on Timothy. He tells Timothy to refute the opposition by setting an example. Timothy doesn't get a free pass for being young. Instead, he must show himself worthy by proving himself. His example is what will help people to regard him properly. One commentator said, the antidote for unfounded contempt for youth is by being an example. 
Now, let me pause here just to make a couple of observations and remarks. We've been blessed here with a church that has a range of age groups, from young kids to teenagers to older folks. So the younger folk in our church, I want to exhort you not to let age stop you from growing spiritually. Don't say, I'm too young to know spiritual things, or I'm too young to serve in church, or I'm too young to grow. In fact, these are the the formative years when your memory is still sharp and you have time to dig into God's Word. You have time and opportunity to serve others and contribute in church. God willing, there will be a time when maybe you will have a full-time job. You'll be required to run your house. You'll be a husband or you'll be a wife. You'll have chores and maybe, if God pleases, you'll have children to look after. All of these will challenge your time and ability to grow even more. If you are a young person in this church, listen to me. No one should look down on you because of your age. Instead, prove yourself. Prove yourself by being an example of spiritual maturity. Read and study God's Word. Try to live lives consistent with your faith. Step up and serve in church. Let your example speak louder than your age. Keep pursuing Him. At the same time, I also need to make the point that just because you're older does not make you spiritually mature. Just because you've been in church a long time and sat under the ministry of the Word for years doesn't mean you've actually grown up spiritually. To the older folks, I would ask you these challenging questions. Is your love for God hotter or colder than last year? Have you grown in conduct from year to year? As you look back on your life, can you say you've progressed spiritually? Can you say that you've grown in the fruit of the Spirit, in love, in joy, in peace, in patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, in self-control? Is your speech more and more seasoned and balanced and sweet? Is your knowledge of the Bible increasing? So I want to leave our first part by restating again that all Christians are required to grow in spiritual maturity, young and old. This leads us to point number two in our sermon. Now, we want to ask ourselves, what do we mean by spiritual maturity? And in verses 12 to 13, Paul gives two parallel instructions that show us what spiritual maturity is. Paul says, let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. Paul is showing us here that spiritual maturity comprises of two elements. One, our conduct, which must be consistent with our faith, and two, our knowledge of God and His Word. Now, these two elements must come together and they mutually reinforce each other. If we lack either of these or if we're imbalanced with one versus the other, then we have a problem in our spiritual lives. Let's dig in a little bit behind this concept of living a life consistent with our faith. Here, Paul lays out five aspects which we are to grow in our conduct. Now, you'll see as we go through each of these elements, they're really, really intertwined and they can't be separated at all. The first thing Paul says is speech. 
which is logos in, in the original Greek. The Bible says a lot about speech, of course. I know the ladies uh, last year were covering in their Bible study class uh, group the, the book of James, and the book of James devotes an entire chapter around how hard it is to control your speech, to tame the tongue. Jesus himself says in Matthew 12, for out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Now notice what he's saying here. He's saying that our speech reflects our heart. Do you see how intertwined that is? If our hearts are really pure, then our speech will also be pure. And that's why Paul says to Timothy, go in and set an example with your speech because you're, you're, it needs to be consistent with who you are and what you believe. Secondly, Timothy is told to set an example in conduct. Paul is saying, don't just know your Bible. You need to go and show it in your actions. Again, the Apostle, Paul, uh, Apostle James spends a whole chapter showing that true faith will result in actions as well. So turn with me here to James chapter 2. James chapter 2, verse 14. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, oh, go in peace, be warmed and be filled, without actually giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? Now, Jesus himself similarly gives a very direct instruction. And he says, there's no point calling him Lord if we don't actually do what he says. In Luke chapter 6, verse 46, Jesus says to the crowd gathered there, following him day after day, and he says, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and yet do not do what I tell you? And so again, you see there is a very strong interlink inter between being a Christian and having a life that's consistent with our calling. The third thing Paul tells Timothy to set an example in is love. The word for love here is agape, which we know is, is one of the most common used words to speak of God's love for the world. It goes to the very heart of the gospel message itself, that God so loved the world that he sent his only son, that whosoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. Of course, at all our weddings today, the most famous passage that's read is what? 1 Corinthians 13, in a very misapplied way, unfortunately. We're told in 1 Corinthians 13 verse 3 that if I give away all I have and if I deliver up my body to be burnt but have not love, I gain nothing. Isn't that a, a, a very significant verse for us to consider? I can give away all my wealth. I can give myself, my own body to be burnt up. But if I do not have love, I have nothing. It's no surprise that Paul is telling Timothy uh, in, in his third instruction here, how important it is that he shows Christ's love for his church and for lost sinners and to set an example for others to follow suit. Now, fourthly, Paul tells Timothy to set an example in faith. And again, you see, faith and love are very, very intertwined. They're not separate buckets. You can't say, I'll do this, but I'm lacking that. I'll have love, but not faith. 
Remember the church in Galatia, which had all kinds of conflicts between Jews and Gentiles, and Paul wrote to them and tells them, guys, cut it out. There's neither Jews nor Greeks. There's faith in love. You'll see that in Galatians 5 verse 6. He says, for in Christ Jesus, there is neither circumcision nor uncircumcision, but only faith working with love. So there's that link there again. Paul is trying to draw this explicit link between faith and love to show what it's like to be in the family of Christ. And finally, there is purity. The Greek here can be translated as chastity or sinlessness of life. It's calling for absolute purity in its highest sense. Now, Paul probably knew as a, as a young man, as a leader in the church, that Timothy is going to be exposed to all kinds of interactions with members of the opposite sex as he ministers. And he's saying to him, in these relationships, they must not have even a hint of impropriety. And, and don't we know it? We see the disastrous effects when a church leader is found to have some inappropriate uh, relationship or is found to have committed adultery in the church. What damage to Christ and the gospel message? And what damage to the church's witness in the local community? And sadly, some of us have seen this personally in the churches that we've been to. And so to bring it all together, I want to go back to this idea again that all five elements are intertwined. Now, for those who know me, you'll know I don't like calling sports analogies because I find not everyone can relate to them. But Paul himself uses it in verse 8 and verse 7 where he says, hey, bodily training is profitable a little bit, but spiritual training is much more important, right? And when we hear Paul telling Timothy, train yourself in godliness. So I'm going to use a sports analogy here. Imagine yourself as an athlete training for a marathon. That's a common theme in the New Testament, running a race. Now, you don't just say to yourself, I need really strong legs because I need to keep on running, right? So day after day, you just run and run without any reservation. That's all you're going to do. No, in fact, you know that to be a good athlete, you need to train all parts of your body and all of your body needs to work together. You need your core muscles and your back muscles to give you endurance and power. So you're going to do sit-ups and push-ups to help you with that, not just run. You know, actually, you need upper body strength to give you the right posture and the right arm swing. Those are really important things in running. All of these muscle groups need to work together, to come together as one. And similarly, what Paul is saying is you can't be a mature Christian by having really good speech and a really good talk, but your conduct is poor. And similarly, you can't be out doing soup kitchens when your mouth is as, as potty as that of a sailor. Your speech needs to be seasoned. And having a strong faith, but none of that shows up in love towards other people and how you treat other people. All of these things need to go hand in hand. So one aspect of growing in spiritual maturity is conduct consistent in our lives. The second aspect of growing in maturity is knowledge of God and His Word. Paul urges Timothy in verse 13, and he says, Until I come... Devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, and to, to teaching. Now, again, we said earlier on 
there is an implication here for Timothy to be an effective leader and to read and to exhort and to teach. He himself must know God's word pretty well, right? But I think from verse 13, we can see that Paul is actually worried about his congregation's maturity. He tells Timothy to go and do that to the congregation, to read to the congregation, to exhort the congregation, to teach the congregation. Now notice this, his concern for spiritual maturity is not fixed by having more programs in the church or more singing or more fun activities and events. His proposed fix is to go deep into God's word. When Paul wrote to the Ephesians, he reinforced this book in the book of Ephesians. Now, again, just as a reminder, Timothy, uh, Paul is writing to Timothy right now about problems in the Ephesians church. He similarly writes to the Ephesians with a more direct letter dealing with that. And in the book of Ephesians, in chapter 4, he tells the church there that they're going to be built up and matured when they sit under the sound teaching and exhortation of God's Word. So, if you have time today, go back, Ephesians chapter 4, and see Paul's direct instructions to the same church that he's writing to Timothy about. Now, Paul exhorts Timothy to build up the congregation's knowledge in three ways, in reading, exhortation, and teaching. Again, all, things, all these things are intertwined. They're all needed for us to mature in our knowledge of God. Reading the Word alone does not help if we don't think about its implications. It just breeds a lot of head knowledge. At the same time, preaching something that's not from the Scripture doesn't help. In fact, there are many churches where you'll hear preaching where the Word of God is not even open. And that is a problem, my friends. Finally, preaching without instruction is similarly not fruitful. How do we know truth and error without really pointing that out clearly? Now, the flow that we see from this reading, exhortation, and teaching, it's not something new that Paul has made up. This pattern has been there since the book of Exodus, when the law was given. Notice that the reading of the word comes first, and then the speaker is called to expound on it. The, the phrase exhortation here is about applying the word of God and encouraging others to have an effect of changing their lives and their behaviors. The point of preaching the Word of God, again, is not to gain more knowledge. It is to change lives by God's grace. At the same time, there must be an element of instruction, which is what the word teaching here means. Paul wants his congregation to be taught doctrine. And I know that's a dirty word in many churches today. We don't care about doctrine. We care about love. But Paul here says that very directly. He wants the church to be taught and to discern what is right and what is wrong. Now, folks, this is why when you come into this church this morning and you look at our bulletin, we start with a call to worship from the Scriptures. That's why you'll see us deliberately have an Old Testament reading and a New Testament reading because we want to hear from the whole counsel of God's will. This is also why we practice expository preaching here in this church which means letting God's Word speak for itself, not letting my own agenda come into God's Word or giving you some motivating speech about how to live life well. I want all of us, and our elders here want all of us, to be able to discern God's Word from God's Word itself. And that is why after this service, 
we finish our day by going to Sunday school classes where the kids and the adults can dive in deeper into doctrine and into learning truth from error. So friends, you can see here the elders take the reading and preaching and teaching of God's word really seriously here in this church. But let me ask you this, what about you? Do you take the reading and preaching of God's word seriously? Do you prioritize the reading and study of God's word as a matter of first importance? Are you actively being diligent to attend church, to listen carefully to the preaching, to examine yourself by what you've heard, and then to meditate upon it during the week? Living in America in 2022, we forget that even today, there are many people, many, many people who don't have the Bible, who don't have a church to go to. We see this even right now. I mean, if you can imagine being a Christian in Ukraine right now. Last week, perhaps, you were at church or you were at a fellowship meal and you were praying together. And this week, you're running for your lives, not knowing when is the next time you'll meet with the people of God again. And, and equally, I know of folks in Asia, in Burma, in India, in Korea, who would wake up at three in the morning just to make a four or five hour bus trip or hike just to meet with the people of God and to hear God's word preached. And I say this because it puts us to shame. I say this because I'm concerned that I don't observe the same zeal in our lives today for God's word and his church. We have folks who miss church at the slightest of inconveniences because they watched too much TV the night, last night, because they're tired or simply they wake up and they say, I don't feel like it this morning. I wonder why our Sunday school only has 30 to 40% of the numbers that we see in a main service. I know this is hard to hear, but this is not a matter of once off. It's a really consistent number that we see. And I have to ask, is football or going to the mall or watching TV or your relaxation so much more important than learning and being fed God's word? Brothers and sisters, I just want to encourage you, let's not neglect the privilege that we have. Think of the people in Ukraine. Tomorrow, this privilege can be gone. And more importantly, think about it, because we will need to give an account for all the privileges that we've had in this life one day. Now, I want to come to our third part, which is about how we should pursue spiritual maturity. Paul says in verse 14 to 15, do not neglect the gift you have, which was given you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. Practice these things, immerse yourself in them, so that all may see your progress. Now, our main part here in this third part of the sermon is that growing in spiritual maturity requires effort and commitment and diligence. N notice the strength and urgency of Paul's exhortations to Timothy. We see it particularly in verses 14 to 15, but also more broadly in other parts of the text today too. So let's, let's go to, for example, start with verse 13. Paul tells Timothy, devote yourself. In verse 14, do not neglect. In verse 15, practice these things. In verse 15, again, immerse yourself. In verse 16, persist in this. These, verse, uh, these verbs that Paul uses shows that he wants Timothy to almost have 
this obsession around pursuing spiritual growth. Now, I wonder, do you have someone in your family who is obsessed about something, whether it's sports or, or an activity? Let's maybe continue on with this example of the marathon runner. How may a marathon runner be obsessed about his sports? Well, firstly, he probably goes running a couple of times a week, and he probably runs and exercises seven days a week, right? We may even say, in, in common terms, he's really religious about it. He's willing to wake up at six in the morning, no matter what, to start his workout, no matter how tired he is. He perseveres and doesn't give up easily. Through all four seasons, if it's raining outside, he puts on his rain jacket and, and raincoat and keeps on going. If it's snowing, he wears a couple of more layers, puts on a mask, puts on gloves, and he keeps on going. If he's sick, he can't wait to get back. He recovers quickly and gets back on the same regime. And his regime is not just about physical activity. He's all in, in all aspects of his life. So we might expect, for example, that he watches every bit of food that he puts in his mouth to make sure that he has the right nutrients and the right proteins that his body needs. He probably weighs himself every night to make sure he's not gaining weight and to make sure he's not losing weight. He needs to have the right balance of energy and mass to, to excel at his sport. He probably goes to bed at the same time every day and makes sure he has his eight to 10 hours so that his body can recover in time. All of these things, my point being, requires a degree of devotion, of practice, of immersion, of persistence. And Paul is saying to Timothy, and Paul is saying to us today, in our spiritual walk, we cannot be lukewarm. We cannot be lukewarm. We must be all in, fully committed, engaged. Now, you may be looking at verse 14 and wondering, What's this one about? It doesn't really apply to us. Timothy here has this special gift, right? Look, look at verse 14. Do not neglect the gift you have, which was given you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. Now, I know lots of theologians have spent many hours debating what verse 14 actually means. And we don't, unfortunately, have time to go into it today. But the big picture thing to note here is that Timothy was recognized by the early church as having particular gifts in teaching and in preaching. And the council of elders laid their hands on him to confirm that gift, to validate it. Now, in this church, we believe that the early church uh, did have prophecies. Prophecy existed in the early church. But we believe that the gift of prophecy has in most part ceased as we have the full and revealed word of God now through his Bible, the entire canon. But the more important point here is that Paul is telling Timothy not to neglect the gifts we've been privileged with. Jesus himself emphasized this, right? In Matthew 25, remember the parable of uh, the, the servants who have been given talents? Some were given five, some were given three, some were given one. Not all of us are given equal things or equal measure. But the whole point about the parable is that we are be called to be faithful stewards with what has been given in our care, whether that's money, whether that's intellect, whether that's EQ, whether that's specific skills that we have. So what might that look like today in our church congregation? Some of us have been blessed with practical handyman skills. 
Others may be good with managing finances. Others are great with relating to children and young people. Others are great at counseling and giving words of encouragement to those who are down. These are all capabilities that God has given to us, and we should not neglect that. Now, I want us to see also that Paul's exhortation is not just limited to gifts, but he applies it actually to the broader context of what he has just said. Look closely at verse 15. You'll see here that Paul says, practice these things, immerse yourself in them. And we get to ask the question again, what things? What is he telling Timothy to practice? It's, of course, the same these things that we saw at the beginning of the passage in verse 11. In other words, Paul has come full circle now to say, what I started looking at in verse 11, I'm closing it off in verse 16. In verse 11, I commanded you to command and teach these things. Now I'm telling you, you need to practice these things too. You see, Timothy doesn't get a free pass just by being a speaker of truth. He needs to be a doer of the truth as well. And as a reminder, these things means growing in conduct, that is consistent in our faith and growing in the knowledge of God and His Word. These are the things that we've been called to practice. So to close this part three up, we see that Paul's emphasis on how to grow spiritually is about us being intentional in the stewardship of the gifts that God has given to us and also being intentional about growing in spiritual maturity. Now finally we come to the last part of our sermon. And that is, why should we grow spiritually? In verse 16, Paul tells Timothy and actually gives him two very compelling reasons. He says, keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this, for by doing so, you will save both yourself and your hearers. By doing so, you will save both yourself and your hearers. And so Paul is laying out two arguments of why we should be pursuing spiritual maturity. Now, at first glance, we may look at this to say, does this somehow imply that Timothy has this magical power to give salvation out to people? Can he determine his own salvation by doing certain things? Now, of course, our short answer is no. That's not what we teach in this church. If you look at other passages in the Bible that Paul himself has authored, that's not at all what he's suggesting. He's not suggesting salvation comes by works or salvation comes by you doing something. Take a look with me. It's worthwhile turning to two passages. Turn to Romans chapter 11. Romans 11 verse 3 and 4. So too, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. But if it is by grace... It is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. See how clearly it's stated here. If it's by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. Similarly, when he wrote to Titus, Paul says in Titus chapter 3, and again, I know we're moving fast, but if you can turn with me there, Titus chapter 3. In verse 4 to 6. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us, 
not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, when he poured out onto us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. Again, you see here in verse 5, not because of works done by us in righteousness. So Paul is not saying to Timothy, do these things and you'll be saved. In this church, we affirm as a matter of first principles and first order that any work of salvation is by grace alone. Yet at the same time, there are two principles that work in harmony with this doctrine of salvation by grace. Firstly, as I said, uh, faith without works is not true faith. It's a dead faith. As we saw earlier, James chapter 2 tells us that explicitly there is no such thing as a faith that does not produce any works. They're intertwined. God did not save us to continue in our sins. God saved us so that we may progress and be sanctified. Paul is saying to Timothy that if he perseveres and he's showing growth and spiritual progress, then this is a sign that his faith is real. This is a sign that his faith is not a dead faith. Secondly, when Paul says to Timothy that he can save others, Paul is acknowledging here that God will use the work and ministry of believers to bring others to himself and to help others grow. For example, Paul uh, Paul says in Romans chapter 10, let me just read here for you. Romans chapter 10, 13 to 15, some of you may know this. Whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. But how will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how will they believe in whom they have not heard? And how will they hear without a preacher? And how will they preach unless they are sent? Paul is saying here, there's a group of people that need to call on the name of the Lord. And by calling on the name of the Lord, they will be saved. But how will they do that? Well, it all starts with another group of people here who are being sent to tell them about it. In other words, Paul is saying that we can be instruments that bring about the gospel message and that sanctify and build others up in church. When other people see the consistency of our lives, when they're exposed to the saltiness of our behavior, of our speech, when they see all of these things, they see the good news of Jesus Christ. That's what it means to be a testimony and an ambassador of Christ. And so this very compelling argument that Paul gives on why we should pursue spiritual maturity is twofold. We will confirm and show that our faith is real and that others will be brought to Christ and will be sanctified by our conduct and growth. And if you ask me, these are very convincing reasons. I want to close with three points of application. Now, firstly, if you're not a believer, if you're not yet a believer, what we've talked about today highlights what it means to have faith in Jesus Christ. It shows you what faith in Jesus Christ will do to your lives. When you turn away from your sin and you submit to him, not only will you be saved from eternal judgment, he will also completely change your life so that no longer will you go after sin, but you will instead grow in your speech, in your actions, in your love, in your faith, in your purity. Your relationships with friends and families will change. Your marriage will change. Your attitude about school and about work will change. 
Your attitude about money and wealth and power will all change. And what's more, he will work in you a deep hunger and thirst for him and his word. You'll see that the Bible is precious and you'll grow to love it and desire it because in it are the words of life. Secondly, for those who are believers, notice that everyone is commanded to grow in spiritual maturity, young and old, preacher, congregation, it doesn't matter. There are no coaches in this game. Everyone needs to be an athlete. We're all required to run the race with diligence. Now, Paul doesn't call on church leaders to mature. He calls on church leaders to ensure that their congregation also mature. So perhaps today you realize you're no longer running the race with the same intensity as you used to. Your love for God's people and His Word may have been dwindling over the years. Perhaps you have stopped attending any sort of church events other than the obligatory Sunday morning. Perhaps you realize that your life is actually not very consistent with the faith that you claim to, pro, uh, to, claim to have anymore. Perhaps you see that there is sin in all areas of your life that you have not battled with. If this is you today, this is a wake-up call. And I urge you to make a renewed commitment to follow Christ and to run the race with intensity. And what's more, if the Holy Spirit is showing you that you haven't actually grown at all, then according to the Bible, that you, you have really serious issues to deal with. You need to be asking yourself, is your life reflecting what the Bible describes as saving faith? Our salvation is not indicated by some prayer we said years ago as a kid or at, at a college camp or whatever else. Our salvation is not indicated by some baptism ceremony that we may have had when we were young. It's not even indicated by us coming to church. Our salvation is evidenced by the spiritual progress that we are making. Now, perhaps you have a head knowledge about the Bible because you've just sat in church for so long, but you've never really submitted every part of your life, your actions, your thoughts, your words, under the kingship of Christ. And if today God is showing you that, then I urge you to turn to Jesus for the forgiveness of sins. He does not shut you out. He does not and will not shut you out. Thirdly, I know that as sinners, we easily steer towards extremes. I know that for myself. Paul has shown us that spiritual maturity involves firstly leading a life that is consistent with our faith, and secondly, growing in our knowledge of God's Word. Both are equally needed. Paul is clearly saying that these two go hand in hand. As sinful beings, we are so prone to being imbalanced one way or the other, aren't we? Now, Paul is saying we can't be armchair theologians, supposedly knowing lots about the Bible and lots about doctrine and yet not having lives that reflect that. In this case, we have not grown spiritually at all and we're at the risk of one day the Lord saying to us, why do you call me Lord, Lord? Depart from me. I never knew you. You don't do at all the things that I'm telling you to do. And on the other hand, we can't be bleeding heart Christians that are not guided by truth. We cannot tolerate sin in the name of love when the Bible clearly condemns sin. If a person is in adultery or some other sin, we can't just ignore that in the spirit of being loving and kind 
Similarly, we can't invite folks into the church who would teach heresy, such as uh, what was happening in the church in Ephesus at this time. So let us ask God to be merciful and to help us to grow in spirituality, uh, in, in maturity in both ways, in a very balanced way. Let me close with this final thought from 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 24, something for us to ponder as we go our way today. Paul says, Do you not know that in a race all the runners run? All the runners run, but only one receives the prize. So run. So run that you may obtain it. Let's pray.